and thank you for coming this evening. <laughs> it's a pleasure to be here. Um, I can't just drop out of the sky and visit your church and pretend to teach you something after the years of ministry of someone like David Stone. Things that stand out in my mind um, back then. He made me feel old for some reason. I don't know. <laughs> um, it was 40 years ago in December that we left the United States and went to Guadalajara, Mexico for language school and from there to El Salvador. The Civil War was the late 70s. That pretty much ran us out after three, three and a half years. And it wasn't premeditated, but we did end up in Cancun back when it was barely known. It was just a small town of 70,000 people and uh, a handful of hotels. Today, the area uh, surpasses a million residents, and that's not counting the tourism, which is one of the highest trafficked tourist places in the world right now. Uh, so things changed awfully rapidly in that sense. I remember that when we first started our deputation, it was in the beginning of 1976, and uh, Brother Stone had moved to pastor in Humboldt, Tennessee, when I'd never been there before. And uh, he invited me to preach and be in that area. And through that, we got some contacts, and my our deputation sort of kicked off from there. My biggest memory is my first experience eating a Sonic burger. <laughs> he has all the credit. He's <laughs> no, it's been um, it's a privilege to be with you this evening. I'll start with my notes. Forgive me if I stick to them very closely. I don't preach much in English, so I depend more on, on what I'm reading. The Eagles. What a reference, right? Back in the 70s? And they were after my time, so that does date me. But I remember Don Henley singing a, a song called A Frail Grasp on the Big Picture. And some of the words are still, are still pretty good today. I think we struggle with a frail grasp of the big picture sometime. And we need to have our head above the clouds and see things more closely to how God sees them. Um, back in my day as well, I really was impressed when the movie Dr. Zhivago came out. And, of course, the novel was a masterpiece, and that was even more enriching than, than watching the movie. But when had all the struggle, there was a book put out recently within the last two years about, it's kind of like the backstory of everything that, Pasternak went through. He was denied the privilege of receiving the Nobel Prize for the book that he'd written. And after it started being published in Western countries in different languages, there was a reaction to the book. One of them was this, that Pasternak, who spent all his life in the Soviet Union, the Soviet environment, could resist all the external pressures and strictures and could conceive and execute a work of utter independence, of broad feeling, and of an unusual imaginative power amounts to almost to a miracle. And after reading the book, I, I, I agree with that statement. Um, we respect and admire people that can grasp the essence of things and find universal truth or something that holds true in the whole thread of humanity throughout the world and throughout time. As Christians, and especially as pastors, we need a fixed gaze on the big picture, on the overview, the broader perspective, the common threads that run through the essential Christian experience wherever and whenever we live. So for a few minutes, some big picture stuff and then maybe some very personal stuff to, to talk about. Three verses that come to mind for this evening and all three hold something in common that tie into 
my theme this evening. Daniel 4.3 says, How great are his signs, and how mighty are his wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and his dominion is from generation to generation. Matthew 16.18, And I say also unto you, Thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And then in Revelation 14.6, And I saw another angel fly in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel to preach unto them that dwell on the earth, and to every nation, and kindred, and tongue, and people. What holds these three verses together is that they all survive us. They all survive this present age. God's dominion is forever, and it's constant. His kingdom is from generation to generation. That's his dominion. Churches are going to be here until he calls us to heaven. And there's the gospel being proclaimed by two angels in the tribulation times around the world, the everlasting gospel. It didn't suffer too badly either by the way we treated it all this time that we've been around. Those things will last. It's resilient. The gospel is resilient. Um, his kingdom certainly is. It has survived everything the world has thrown at it. It's been tried to, they've tried to make, we've tried to make it fit into every kind of political, social structure. We've tried to do everything in the world with or to the gospel. And it just holds true and shines brightly. And it's just as relevant and powerful and needed as it, as it ever has been. Um, there is concern in the world even beyond us as Christians, as we view ourselves against, in, in a world that um, does not understand how Christ can save eternally. I was watching a TED talk the other day. Some of them are very interesting. I, on purpose, sometimes I watch things that I know I won't agree with. And sometimes you, you learn quite a bit that way. Uh, a very recent one, Rabbi Sharon Browse, she's from California. It was an 18-minute talk, and it was an enthusiastic presentation of the need to present God to the world in a way that the world will listen. And in her mind, the two biggest problems right now as far as getting people to be interested and pay attention is on one hand, obviously, the religious extremism. And on the other hand, what she calls religious routineism. And I think we all can think about that a little bit. It's very easy to um, just fall away into biding our time, punching a clock, and letting things happen as they will, and not really taking control of what our responsibility is in our present world. How do we wake people up? It's disturbing in our day and time. Brother David was chuckling before about this, the phones and all the technology we have today. And I don't know if it's all, all that good in the sense that even people who study psychology write about it and you can read about it. They say that the more we learn about what's broken in our world, the less likely we are to do anything. It's called psychic numbing. And certainly we can just look five minutes at any piece of news. We get instant reports on the most terrible things that are going on, the most terrible suffering that's happening, the latest calamity, the latest injustice, the latest crime committed down the street. And it's, it is mind-numbing. Um, we need to be careful about how we allow those things to affect us. Should, do, should it create apathy? Or should we insist that people wake up? Should we look at things like they need to be seen and do something, do what we can about them? <clears throat> Closer to home, U.S. theologians, preachers, 
view of their world is changing here in the U.S. I say they because I don't live here. <laughs> but reading people like Albert Moeller, who is highly respected and needs to be an academic and head of Southern Baptist uh, Seminary, if I'm not mistaken, he wrote recently a series of three messages on, on how, how to preach in this present age because it's changed so much, according to him. And he says, we now represent a worldview that is not only considered marginal, but subversive of the new intellectual and moral regime. And he fears that even people in our churches have been contaminated by some of that. And without trying to disagree or challenge someone with that big of a mind, I'd like to say that what we live today is not an aberration. It's not abnormal. It's more like welcome to the world as it always has been. In your face, antagonistic. It's always going to be that way. We know that we are from God and that the whole world lieth in wickedness, literally under the power of the Satan. Okay? That doesn't change. That's a constant. And preaching works great as long as you have listeners, particularly new ones. And I think we need to be careful about how we define preaching and how we go about that activity. Our real reality. Number one is that God will be glorified. In 1 Corinthians 15, 24, then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and authority and power. And in verse 28, when all things shall be subdued unto him, then shall the Son also himself be subject unto him that put all things under him, that God may be all in all. 1 Corinthians 15, we automatically think of the resurrection and its rich teaching. But really, the resurrection, as it's taught, is not the end game in that chapter. The end game is the glory of God himself. And our resurrection happens to fit into that picture, which makes it very nice for us who are saved. But the real result of all that is everything will end up again completely submitted, subject to God, and God will be everlastingly glorified as a result. That's not going to change anytime soon. It's never going to change. The gospel is eternal, and that makes the gospel and us resilient, regardless of what happens today or tomorrow or next week or next year until the Lord returns. Um, after Hurricane Wilma, Wilma hit us in Cancun, it's been 11, 12 years ago now, um, everybody still talks about before and after. Cancun's never been the same since Hurricane Wilma, and the contrast is, is pretty interesting. But part of that was the mangroves, you know, those plants out there in the marsh and the swampy areas along the Wulang areas that they, they suck up salt water and the leaves have fresh water in them. It's kind of an amazing thing. They were destroyed, and for six, seven, eight years it looked like they were never coming back, and today they're back. It's amazing how resilient nature is in many ways. Um, your lawn in the summertime is resilient. When I was a kid and had to mow the lawn, resilient wasn't something I liked about grass. <laughs> Our bodies are made that way too. It's built into the system, you might say. Um, yesterday, the day before, I celebrated three years of a complete knee replacement, and I walk very comfortably, and I even get, get healthy exercise pretty much every day. I can even run a little bit once in a while on a soft trail. Don't tell my doctor. Um, but it's amazing how you come back from gimping around and being in pain and, and everything tightened up 
and after a year or so, it, it comes back. It's amazing what, how, how that works. But this is even more true, as I'm saying, about God and his kingdom. How great are his signs. His dominion is from generation to generation. That's never not true. That's a constant. That's right now. Resilience is already promised. It's already built into the system. You might say the code's already been written into the software. A few years ago, I read a book entitled The Age of the Unthinkable. And it's a little different take on things. Once again, not a Christian view of things at all. But the gentleman was somewhere between a mathematician and a political scientist and was trying to devise ways for us to anticipate, to think through the calamities, the, tra the tragedies, the, the supposedly unpredictable things that happen on our planet. And as our populations grow, every event puts more people at risk. And um, it was an interesting study in probabilities, but his, his main purpose for writing the book was to develop ways to build re resilience into even political dialogue, even on an international level, and even in the area of natural disasters. If a hurricane strikes, or if that volcano blows, or if tornadoes hit, what's the worst case scenario? How can we minimize the damage? And how can we recover and move forward? Um, I thought it was interesting because no one should understand this condition in the world better than us. Even to us, it seems random sometimes, unpredictable. There really isn't much of a connection between being good or Christian or spiritual or hardworking and being sick or having an accident or losing a loved one, and the list goes on. It's part of the human condition. We that, that have been fortunate enough, or that's not, the wrong, that's not the right way to say it, we that, who have been saved by the grace of God have been allowed into his presence, a relationship with him that covers all our bases. We're still going to die. We're still going to have serious problems and serious times of grieving and everything else while we're here. But at the end, it's over completely and changed to something different. We understand the condition. And uh, if people start asking, why should this happen? Why does it happen to me? My response might be, why not? What exempts you from it exactly? But we are ready for every contingency and for the worst that can happen. No one understands this better than us. The 21st century is looking like it might qualify as an age of the unthinkable. New Testament churches should be at the forefront. We should be like forward thinkers, giving them a serious thought to how resilient we will be. Whatever happens, we need that ability to roll with the punches and remain effective even after the upheavals and surprises that will continue to overtake us. If we insist on taking, making the church just our way or the highway, that can turn into more like stubbornness than conviction sometimes when we need to be out there devising constantly better ways to reach into people's lives and help them see Jesus Christ as he really is. New Testament churches are a little bit like a bobber on a fishpole. They always pop back up doing what God intended for them to do until the end of the age. They may not reappear as carbon copies of previous editions, but churches come back. <clears throat> it will fulfill its mission without shedding doctrinal or functional integrity 
just as Jesus had designed. <clears throat> Do we underestimate what Jesus established when he started his assembly? It's amazing to me. The more I study it, the more amazed I am at how simple and how elegant the concept of church is. Is it really true Jesus' concept of church could and should function in any culture, in any language, in any country, in any social or political background, whether it's favorable or not, in any century, until he comes back, it really is true. The essence of Christianity can stick and can be a witness and should be in every culture. <clears throat> the nature of the church that Jesus established has resilience built right in. If God, here's where you can kick me out the door now. <clears throat> if God is in the nation-preserving business, he doesn't have a great track record. If he doesn't come very soon, we might witness the next roll call of nations that were once called this and that and not here anymore except in history books. On this continent, things could, trade, could change even drastically compared to what we're used to or what we think should happen here. But regardless, there is nothing as resilient as a New Testament church. The essence of true Christianity and spiritual community will adapt, survive, and prosper. History has borne witness to this. Jesus himself promised this. We're ready for anything. Bring it on. Sort of a parenthesis, but when we talk about persevering and carrying on for the Lord, the, uh, I was reading not too long ago, some weeks and months ago, a couple of different authors from years back, even older than me, uh, the Westminster Confession of Faith in 1646, talking about the perseverance of the saints. And I'm, I think sometimes our English, our understanding of that phrase and what it meant in, in those times and what it should mean now, might get lost a little bit in the way we use the word about bearing a cross and holding out faithful to the end and, and uh, just struggling and pushing forward and marching on, when in fact... The perseverance of the saints has to do with our joyfulness, our confidence, our hope in the Lord, our full knowledge of the fact that God is in control. Burn me at the stake. No, I mean, take my family. Take everything I have. God's in control. And there's a joyfulness there that nobody can take from us. I think that's what persevering ought to be about. Is anybody old enough here to remember Winnie the Pooh? Remember Eeyore? No matter. We have to get beyond that. In Spanish, you'd say nimolos. Whatever's going to happen is going to happen, and not much you can do about it, and just have to kind of shrug your shoulders and carry on. I think we're meant for a bit more than that. In, for, in 2 Corinthians 1.5, Paul writes, For as the sufferings of Christ abound in us, so our consolation also aboundeth by Christ. And when you really study that and apply it to your life, that means that whatever happens to you, the deepest valley, the deepest grief you can go through, the Holy Spirit is there with consolation, more than sufficient to bring you back to where you were, but to push you forward in continued service and usefulness. Not just about hanging on. Do we look ahead with hope, with joy, with anticipation? We will be back. Actually, we never left. <laughs> now the personal stuff. Where are we? Where is your bottom line? I mean, the non-negotiable minimum required to keep you happy. 
I think we need to deal with a certain sense of entitlement that, for lack of a better word, that we, that we work with inside of ourselves. There's my bottom line. I fall below that. I'm on my knees to God. God, get me back to where I'm supposed to be, up here. While most of the Christian world and historically Christian experience, the real bottom line is down here. And most people live and die down here without the amenities and the comfort and a lot of other things. And they're serving the Lord and bearing fruit. And their bottom line was down here the whole time. But ours is up here. I'm not sure if we should feel that special sometimes. Where's your bottom line? Bombings, hunger, genocide, natural disasters and their results. As we speak, in the kingdom of God on earth, people live with threats, persecution, imprisonment, death. Still more the norm today than the exception. The Apostle Paul gives us an example. Um, I've heard him called the master of low expectations. Nobody hoped in Christ. Well, he did. But when it came to this world, he was never disappointed. <laughs> he had no expectations of how he's going to be treated on this earth. He was never surprised, never acted like God betrayed him, right? He had low expectations about what could happen to him here on earth, but he sure had a full confidence in his Savior. When our expectations exceed reality, we slide downward in disappointment, frustration, anger. It would be much better if we started at the real bottom line and not at the artificial one that we pasted up here and expected God to honor. <clears throat> our world is what it has always been, lying in wickedness, says John, antagonistic to the gospel message, intolerant of people who try to spread it, even if we could do it as perfectly as Jesus himself in word and in deed, we're never, we're never going to be comfortable and well-received on this earth. Next point, as far as where we are, we have everything that we need. This is not profound. We have everything that we need or will ever need right now to function as a witness for the Lord Jesus Christ. The gospel is no less dynamic, no less true than it has ever been. Everything about the gospel screams at us today, do something. Are you saved? Do you have a Bible? How about a kitchen table? A couple chairs? A coffee pot if you want me to go. How much do we need to actually use what God's given us? How many opportunities are right at our doorstep that personal witness, using hospitality as a ministry. There are opportunities that surround us every day. Inertia is a powerful thing. Have we been numbed by the bombardment of the bad news that we see and the hard knocks that have come our way in our life? Maybe, our, maybe we're too comfortable in our little box, the four walls that we, that we meet in. Do we have our wagons circled? On the defensive to protect, to protect what exactly? Where is the human empathy, not to even mention yet, genuine Christian sentiment towards people in need? Where are the good Samaritans? Who is your neighbor, really? 
once again, I have to find my tennis shoes. I hope there's a back door. Um, I wish no one evil. But sometimes, I think it might be a healthy exercise to ship off a bunch of people to a refugee camp where they don't speak English, there's not enough food, no water. You ask for medicine, they laugh at you. You either cut yourself up alive trying to get through the barbed wire or you put up with it for six months, five years, ten years. If that was your case, wouldn't you think just a little bit when you see your starving children and all the misery, wouldn't you think just a little bit about going somewhere else maybe where you could find a job and make a life for your family? My testimony with my wife's, people like you, we'll start with David Stone, people like you were partly responsible for making Linda and me think that going was our obligation too. It took a few years and a few unexpected turns in the road before we ended up in Cancun in May of 1982 and soon felt settled at peace about where the Lord wanted us and what he had been preparing us for. We could not have known anything about the future of Cancun. We could not have predicted how Linda's severe health issues might play out, but we were both where we wanted to be, where we were convinced that the Lord wanted us. I told someone this morning that um, uh, part of the reason I can say that I've been 40 years on the mission field, living in Mexico, is because Linda never said no. Even at her sickest, she was home in our home down there. Um, but how do you change the fact that your life is gradually turned into being a caregiver and at some point it becomes pretty much a full-time job? I know I'm not the only one in the room that knows what I'm talking about. You open your eyes and you go on, on, on the Internet and you can find a lot of information. This is a pretty common occurrence too, isn't it? Cancun grew from small, off the charts, while Linda declined from all of her activities and ended up with debilitating pain, walker, wheelchair, all of that, major heart failure in 2010. I could go on and on, but I'm going to a certain point here. My traveling in a conventional manner to preaching points and such changed. My priority was my wife. I'm the only one who was really qualified to take care of her and organize her medications and all that. Um, but wait. I know I'm not the only one that's in that situation. The way I see it now, it was clear that God had called me. We were both at peace about where we were and where, we've, where I've been for the last 35 years. But you know what? He called me to go and put me in a place where he did most of my homework for me. He brought people from all over Mexico and from other parts of the world right to my doorstep. I can't control that. I didn't have a hand in really doing that. But I had no reason not to reach out, invite people in. Church in our living room has been a given for 27, 28 years in one form or another. We've opened our home, discipleship, one-on-one, -on -one. the coffee flows. We like coffee down there too, that kind of stuff. Um, but you do what you can do, and it's amazing how the Lord blesses. Uh, changing those tactics and reaching into the lives of neighbors professional people, a lot of architects with that kind of construction going on, doctors, lawyers, teachers, 
small and medium-sized business owners. Um, just a very healthy society in that regard. Uh, it's amazing the opportunities to reach into lives. Once you've paid your dues and you've been there and they know you're one of them, and you're going to hang around for a while. And uh, when a friend introduces you to a friend, now you're friends, and the trust that, that has opened up to you is just amazing. And it's, you have to be so careful to use that wisely and to take advantage of it in the right way. The way I see it, God did my homework for me. You have no control over population growth or the rapidly changing demographics in the Houston area. This is mind-boggling coming back here with all that's going on in Houston in recent years that I've not been around to see. You have no control over that. You probably don't even have a say about who moves in next door to you or across the street or if you live in a complex above you or below you. As I speak, my home where we have been the last 11, 12 years was completely enough away from the main, main part of town where we were completely surrounded by jungle and uh, no neighbors. And I can't tell you how important that was in my care for Linda in her final years. Within two months of her passing, all that jungle's cleared off and people are building. Next to me, next to our bedroom, they're building what they call an event salon. Baptisms, drunken stuff, school stuff, late nights, loud music. I may end up having to move from there myself someday. I have no control over that. Not even little things, much less bigger things. But wait, I do have control over something that's pretty important. I do have a say in how I react to those people that are coming into my world. I can determine to present the gospel to them and show them Jesus Christ before they see other things. I can determine that it doesn't matter who or how they got here, but they need Jesus. Now I'm got, now finally getting on my soapbox here for a couple minutes. Should foreign missionaries be the only Christians responsible or burdened to learn a language to reach into a people group with the gospel? Probably not everyone can. Most who could probably won't. But pick a language. Maybe think about the influx of a particular people group in your area or neighborhood. Would you rather try reaching them on your turf? or back where they came from where you can be arrested, imprisoned, or shot for preaching to them. If you try to learn a language, you get a taste of the age-old question, what came first, the language or the culture? Culture mirrors language. Language mirrors culture. It's amazing. I have a quote from uh, an Italian philosopher back there somewhere saying, in effect, that he who has two languages has two souls. And in a way, that's close to true. That's two, two different ways of thinking. And getting into the language and being able to understand how people think and realizing it's not the same. It's not just cut and dry translating words. People think differently. And they act differently because of it. And it's amazing when you can have that kind of communication with others. It brings smiles and the chance for new friendships by just making a stab at it. Letting someone hear the gospel from your own lips in their native tongue is a priceless gift, and one that could reap eternal reward. Okay, maybe learning a language would not be your thing. How about teaching or tutoring at English as a second language? I do know some folks that do that, and they're having opportunities to present Christ to those people. 
Either way, for me, it's a win-win. Taking the initiative, opening your home, showing hospitality for the gospel's sake is a tool that nearly all of us have within our grasp. Even some of us who are full-time caregivers, as I've been. He tells you to go and then does a good deal of your homework for you, brings people to your doorstep. I think we're responsible for that. Application, which means I'm done in about two and a half hours, not really. God has not stopped honoring his word. He does not love your neighbors any less than he always has, regardless of where they come from or what language they speak. Jesus shed divine, innocent blood on the cross to purchase our redemption. Tell me, who does God love less than he does you? It requires a deeply personal response in the only option that will effect change or bear real fruit. Constant personal witness is the one ingredient that we see all through the ages from the time of Christ. It's always been there. That personal witness for Christ. Persecuted, harangued, massacred, whatever, whatever, you, want to, whatever you want to talk about, the, the history of, of, of Christians, it's been not very nice. And yet, that personal witness continues. That's the constant. Are we part of that? Like the Apostle Paul, we are debtors. We look at people and see amorality, unbelief, disdain for the truth, religious fanaticism, hatred toward, excuse me, even the idea of God, especially when he's allowed something painful to happen. Tell me what part of that does not describe you before your unregenerated spirit was made alive in Christ. It's certainly true of me. What gives us the right to be smug or cold-hearted or condescending or dismissive or fearful or hateful toward people, people who, who, who God loved no less than he loved you and me? My life in Cancun as a missionary, pastor, and teacher at the same time that my primary role in this world was as a caregiver for many years. In other words, there may be ways, there were ways to, 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 to do outreach. There were ways to reach into people's lives. And when you think about doing one-on-one -on -one discipleship with people that, I mean, they're your peers, they're, they're, they're friends. Um, most of my best friends are in Cancun. Um, it's, it's an amazing experience when you can disciple people and create that kind of a bond, that kind of a relationship. It's worth the stretch. People can hurt you. They really can. But, boy, it's worth the, it's worth the stretch. I'll confess to you tonight, I don't know how this sounds to, in a crowd like this, but um, during those years of, of uh, severe health problems for Linda and our medical expenses, which for astronomical tries were able to keep them low, and not being protected, from the beginning, because of pre-existing conditions, we never could get insurance, ever. Um, there were months for a stretch of years there where my average medical outlay for Linda was between $1,000 and $1,500 a month. That didn't come from here. It came from folks down there who were involved in helping take care of Linda also in other ways. It's an amazing testimony. And um, those folks, they have their own... They're on their own now with their own pastor, and it's just a, uh, it, it leaves me speechless trying to talk about them. How we stereotype others sometimes. <laughs> I'm not trying to burden you with things that seem unreachable to you. My prayer is that God opens doors for you in such a way that you feel rewarded with a sense of usefulness. Believe me, I know how important that is. And on top of that, 
reward because you were able to share Christ with someone who, someone new, someone unexpected. My, how that experience can be uplifting. So I guess it's time for a little risk assessment. There's risk involved with taking the initiative, with trying to reach into other people's lives. The fear of getting tongue-tied, the fear of being put down or insulted, being asked a hard question and not having a good answer, rejection by a friend or a group of friends, shot out, a door slammed in your face, added friction in your home, within your family. And in addition to that, for normal Christians in the rest of the world, add to it intolerance, what you do is called illegal activity, arrest, imprisonment without due process, persecution, torture, threats, and yeah, you could die. After properly evaluating the risk, we're all compelled to come back to a verse like 2 Corinthians 4.11 that says, for we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. In an old sermon by B.B. Warfield, he writes this about self-sacrifice, referring to Christ. He says, he was led by his love for others into the world to forget himself in the needs of others, to sacrifice self once for all upon the altar of sympathy. Self-sacrifice brought Christ into the world, and self-sacrifice will lead us, his followers, not away from, but into the midst of men. So it's not as much about being selfless as being unselfish. I think I could skip a page or two here. I think I will. What's the bottom line for you? I think it's embodied in 2 Corinthians 5.20. Now then we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God did beseech you by us. We pray you in Christ's stead, be ye reconciled to God. We're ambassadors for Christ. It comes back to that. That's our primary purpose for God leaving us here to begin with. And the words of wisdom from an elf, I read the Lord of the Rings too. And he's trying to counsel the fellowship because they're about to break up and, and uh, disband and go, you know, while they go forward with the ring. He writes, he, he, he says this, your quest stands upon the edge of a knife. Stray but a little and it will fail to the ruin of all. Yet hope remains while all the company is true. I like the spirit of that. And yet success depends on the deeply personal response of each individual involved. You're saved. You're part of one of God's assemblies. You dare not resist his call to arms. Yet it is not a call to fight and defend as much as it is to open your arms, open your heart, open your home, open your mouth, open your life with the wonderful news of a Savior who died for the sins of the world. We're ready. We have everything we need right now. We're resilient. We're joyful and excited about the future. Isaiah 58:11 says, and I close with this, and the Lord shall guide thee continually and satisfy thy soul in drought and make fat thy bones. And thou shalt be like a watered garden and like a spring of water whose waters fail not. May we pray. Thank you, Lord, for your unchanging word, for your unchanging presence in our lives and in our universe. And help us, Lord, to keep our eyes centered on you. Forgive us for the frail grasp of the big picture that we 
live with and react to many times. Help us to keep our eyes steady on the fact that everything about you is eternal, starting with your word and your promises to us. Thank you for your love and the unconditional mercy you extended to us when you offered us so great a salvation. Thank you, Lord, for each precious soul here present this evening. Use us for your glory. Help us to reach out to the ones closest to us and to take those moments, those opportunities to talk to others. Maybe even open our homes and work at making friends. We thank you, Lord, for your love for us. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you.